Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. It's Matthew 15, verses 21 to 28. The faith of a Canaanite woman. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she cried, she said. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Dear Lord God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Speak into our hearts and lives today through Steve's preaching as he breaks open your word and shares it with us. Cause it to bring clarity, discernment and obedience to each of us as we listen and take it into our being. All through Jesus Christ, our King of Kings. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mary. Wonderful to be with you. Welcome, particularly if you're a guest of uh, Adam, a visitor uh, for Adam's Baptism. It's great to have you here. This is week five in a series we're doing called Encounters with Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And each week we look to not just look at an encounter he has with a person, or, but also answer a big question of life. Today we look at this encounter with the Canaanite woman and we look to answer the question, what does faith look like? I think there are five main answers that people today in society give to what does faith look like. The five answers, you might say the traditional answer is, well, it's a life of purity and sacrifice. You can only approach God in faith once you're clean and have paid for your sins. The traditional answer. Now there's three secular answers. Secular answer number one is blind faith. Faith in the absence of evidence, despite the evidence, as Richard Dawkins famously articulated it. Secular answer number two, well, it's my faith. I put together my cocktail of ideas and beliefs and practices that I determine what I write for. It's my faith. Secular answer number three, well, it's faith in me, myself. Believe in yourself. You do you. Look in your heart and then believe in yourself. Traditional, secular, and then naive Christian. Let go and let God. It's easy. Just just give everything to God and don't think or plan or act. Just let go and let God. Jesus' encounter with the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 shows us that all five answers are wrong. They're wrong. And in showing us that they're wrong, he makes everyone feel a little bit uncomfortable. No one likes being told they're wrong and no one likes to be likened to a dog. And yet Jesus does both. Why? To test our faith. 
to see how strong our faith is. This story is amazing because it shows the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and the 12 disciples, all Jewish men, that this Gentile woman has what? Verse 28. Great faith. No one else in the Gospel of Matthew was ever given this accolade. Woman, you have great faith. The woman has a greater faith than the 12 disciples and all the teachers of the law. And as Jesus shows how wonderful her faith is, he reveals the ugly racial and gender prejudices his disciples have. So in this story, Jesus is both has two audiences in, in mind, the great faith of the woman and the lack of faith of the disciples. He's praising her, he's educating them. He's encouraging her, he's rebuking them. He's including her, he's exposing them. I once heard said that the gospel comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable. Well, that's this story. So strap in, it's not gonna be a comfortable ride. What does faith look like? Genuine saving faith. Four things. It rests in truth. It comes by grace. It requires persistence. It sends us out. It rests in truth in the person of Jesus. How does the woman address Jesus? Verse 22. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 25. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me. Verse 27. Yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. The woman sees Jesus more clearly than anyone else has done so far in the gospel. He's the Lord. He's Yahweh. He's the covenant-making God of the Old Testament. He's the son of David. He's the anointed king. She's a Canaanite. And yet she knows more clearly than anyone else that this is Israel's king and Lord, the son of David. And the only appropriate posture before such a king is what? She kneels in worship before his greatness and his power. And here was something else. She's from Tyre. Before the birth of Christ, Herod I rebuilt the great temple of the pagan god Eshmun, the god of healing. The local deity of where she is from, the local god is a god of healing, but she doesn't go to her pagan Canaanite god and the temple to be healed. She comes to a person called Jesus who's entered her region because she knows he has power to heal the daughter. Do you see where her faith is? In a person called Jesus who walked this earth. Faith isn't blind faith against the evidence. Faith is faith on the basis of the evidence of who Jesus is and was. And you go, well, that's nice, Steve. If I'd walked the earth when Jesus walked the earth, maybe I'd have that kind of evidence. What evidence do I have? She met him. I didn't meet him. Thanks for asking. Four things. If this story is not a historical account, who made it up? It's too counterintuitive, Jesus referring to the woman as a dog and seemingly brushing her off initially. One. Two. The disciples, as normal, come across as the bad guys, trying to usher her away and quieten her down. If Jesus didn't heal this woman's daughter and it's just made up, what was the motive in the heart of the charlatan disciple who decided to make up a story and paint themselves in really bad light? Who does that? Three, how do you account for Jesus' impact on human history? Any historian will tell you that Jesus was a remarkable man and something extraordinary happened when Jesus walked this earth. Historian Tom Holland, I have his book there, Dominion. He's not, he doesn't believe Jesus is the son of God, but he talks about the volcanic effect Jesus had in human history and the ripples and the tremors 
still shape our whole view of the world because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. If, if this isn't who Jesus was, if he didn't do, who made it up? Who had such genius? Who, who, who made up these ideas that became life-changing for the Western world? If it wasn't Jesus, who was the genius behind all the teaching? For he cannot just be a good moral teacher. That's what most historians try to do when they look at the evidence. They put him in the good teacher category as a way to explain him away. But wait a minute. Look at the story. Is he a good teacher in this story? He's anything but a good teacher. He seems to be quite rebuking her, and then he seems to be healing. It's not a... He addresses her as... She addresses him as Lord and King, and he accepts those titles. He doesn't call him good teacher. You cannot read this story and say, Jesus is a great good teacher. That's all he was. No, don't be silly. C.S. Lewis famously put it like this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing you must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You have to make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up from a fall, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any of this patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He never intended to. Lewis carries on. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And subsequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And that was her view. This was God walking on earth. So there's evidence. There's plenty of evidence for your faith to rest in. It's a faith that rests in truth, not blind belief. It's reasonable, historical, verifiable. I have a number of books if you want to investigate that further that you can take from me. There's evidence there if you'll open your mind to look at it. Faith rests in truth it comes by grace to the outsider but to humble the insider this could not be more clear from the story this woman is an outsider in every way geographically an outsider jesus's entire and sidon pagan enemy territory to the jews he's outside of israel he's far from jerusalem as we would say he's beyond the pale the people in the area of tyre and sidon are dirty and they don't follow the jewish purity laws Geographically an outsider, by gender an outsider. She's a woman and not a man in a patriarchal society. Social norms would not, have, would not have allowed her to go and approach a man in public, and yet she does. By family an outsider. Her daughter has his unclean, evil spirit. By association, this woman was from a chaotic and dark family. Something evil and unclean and powerful had entered the daughter and entered the family. They were weird. For ethnically an outsider. She's a Canaanite the old bitter enemies of the Jews. There's so much hatred, history and animosity between the Jews and the Canaanites. In their eyes, she is a dog. A racial slur the Jews used against the Gentiles. Dirty, unclean, unwashed and unwanted. But it's not just geographic, gendered, familial, tribal context that means she's an outsider. It's the story of Matthew chapter 15. In the beginning verses of Matthew 15, the big question is what makes someone clean? What makes someone pure? What is, some, is it, what is it that defiles a person? Is it what's on the outside or on the inside? Is it what you say with your lips or what you worship with your heart? Is it what goes into your mouth or what comes out of your mouth? 
Jesus has been redefining, redefining in Matthew 15 the Jewish purity laws. And he's saying, it's what's on the inside that makes you unclean, the sin, the greed, the hypocrisy. It's not whether you follow certain religious rituals and hand-washing and you eat or don't eat certain foods. Look at verse 19, it's 22. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him. Do you see the context? The woman knows. She has none of the religious, moral, cultural credentials to approach a pure Jewish rabbi. She's a Canaanite, a Gentile, a pagan, a woman, and her daughter has an unclean spirit. She knows that in every way, according to the standards of that day, she is unclean and disqualified to approach Jesus. She's at the bottom of the list, and yet she does approach him. And after some testing, she is praised as having greater faith than anyone else so far in Matthew's gospel. The message couldn't be clearer. Jesus' salvation doesn't come to the insider. It comes to the outsider. Because it's not a salvation you earn by being pure. It's a salvation you receive by grace. It doesn't matter what race you are, what gender, what geographic area, what you do with your food and your hands. Jesus' salvation is not given according to any Jewish or human understanding of what is clean and unclean. Jesus says, my salvation comes by grace. I make you clean, not because you've lived a good life or offered sacrifices for your sins, but because you reached out in faith and came towards me for healing. And it's all a gift I give. I give salvation as healing, not, gift as, not gifted as a reward. I give salvation to the desperate types, not the clean types. And here's the thing. Grace always tastes sweet to the outsider like the woman and bitter to the insider like the Pharisees and the disciples. Everyone who reads this story thinks Jesus is being harsh. The woman deserves better from Jesus. We might even look down on Jesus. How dare you imply that she's a dog? That's unfair. And we, we think we're superior morally to Jesus. We would never do that. So we think she deserves better and we think we are right to judge Jesus for doing what is wrong when he calls her a dog. Pride always reveals itself in entitlement for what we deserve, our rights, and judgment of others who we think are less good than us. Can you see the person in the story who isn't offended by Jesus' implication that this woman is a dog? It's the woman. She admits she's a dog and deserves only the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She understands grace. Grace comes to the undeserving. Grace comes to, know, to those that know they are just dogs. But grace offends the proud, the people that think, well, we're better than dogs. We've earned it. And therefore, you know, we deserve a blessing. The woman in this story is amazing. When Jesus says, verse 24, I was sent to only to the lost sheep of Israel, when he says in verse 26, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, she understands that Israel's Messiah, Jesus, that in him there is sufficiency and plenty for all the Gentiles. She knows that Jesus is telling a parable about that he must first go to the Jews and then go to the Gentiles, that there's an order to salvation and a principle from Scripture that must be obeyed. Salvation is from the Jews and for the Jews first, but as God had promised all the way, all the way back to the father of the Jewish nation in Genesis 12 to Abraham, 
our salvation would spill over from the house and the table of the Jews and include all the nations, first the Jew, but then the Gentile. This woman understands those promises and understands what Jesus is getting at. This woman understands the person, the person, and purpose, and the mission of Jesus more than anyone else. And when Jesus gives the mini parable about the house of Israel and the crumbs that fall for the dogs, he is also picking up and exposing some of the racial and cultural prejudice that the disciples had. One commentator, Ken Bailey, puts it like this. Jesus was voicing and thereby exposing deeply held prejudices in the minds of the disciples. In the process, he's speaking to both audiences. He's embarrassing the disciples by verbalizing their deepest prejudice. And in doing so, he's praising the woman who understands the order of salvation, first for Jew, then for Gentile. The disciples look like fools as they urge Jesus to drive the woman away because she keeps screaming. They just want peace and quiet. They, they're content with their narrow view of the world. But this woman, she's magnificent. She enters the parable. She sees her place as a Gentile. And she says, she says, if only I could have a crumb, that'd be enough. I'm not after anything more than a crumb, Jesus. Give me that and that is plenty. Her persistence is testimony that she, more than you and I, knows the sufficiency and the surplus that's in Jesus, that just a crumb is enough. Tim Keller puts it like this. It's amazing. She doesn't take offense. She doesn't stand on her right. She says, all right, I may not have a place at the table, but there's more than enough on that table for everyone in the world, and I need mine now. She's wrestling with Jesus in the most respectful way, and she will not take no for an answer. I love what this woman is doing. Keller carries on. In Western cultures, we don't have anything like this kind of assertiveness. We only have assertion of our rights. We do not know how to contend unless we're standing up for our rights, our dignity, our goodness, saying, this is what I'm owed. But this woman is not doing that. This is rightless assertiveness, something we know nothing about. She's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. She's saying, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness, and I need it now. And as you read the surrounding chapters of Matthew 15, those that are clean and inside always seem to be outside. And those that are dirty and on the outside always come in. Jesus seemed to do that, offend the insider, but welcome the outsider who presses on by faith. What does faith look like? It rests in truth. It comes by grace. It requires persistence because Jesus is teaching us. Ken Bailey again puts the point like this. Jesus compliments the woman by giving her a tough exam. A good coach honors a good runner by placing her in the toughest race. The greater the student, the harder the exam. The greater the runner, the harder the race. The greater the disciple, the harder the path. It's as we face resistance, challenge, setbacks, and frustration that our faith grows and reveals to be so strong, is revealed to be so strong. Sadly, in the Gospel of Matthew so far, the disciples have been revealed many times, too particularly, for having really weak faith. You have little faith. Why are you so afraid, he says in chapter 8, when they fear a storm. Chapter 14, you have little faith, he said. Why do you doubt when Peter tries to walk on water and then falls in? The disciples, the disciples kept failing the exam. As the race got tougher and the exam got harder, they kept failing. And here too, they fail the exam with their racial and cultural prejudices that get in the way of them reaching out to a Gentile woman. And yet this woman who's received the silent treatment and two potentially offensive and stinging comments, she got a tough exam. She got a race that was real hard. Jesus says, ah, woman, you have great faith. 
your request is granted. Faith is not blind, friends. It's based on evidence. Faith is not inside me and nor a cocktail of ideas I come up with. Faith is in Jesus, who he is, what he said he is, who he said he was. Faith does not come because we are pure and have offered sacrifices for our sins. Faith comes by grace and grace alone. And nor is faith an easy or naive, let go and let God. No, you have to lay hold of Christ every day and grab any crumb you can get. Not let go and let God. Jesus is taking us deeper. He wants to see if our faith will handle the pushback and the exam. Someone once said there's four types of people in the world when it comes to courage and cowardice. Yeah. Cowards, ordinary people, heroes, and mothers. <laughs> mothers aren't really on the spectrum from cowardice to courage because if your child is in jeopardy, you just lay your life down. That's a mother's love. Did you hear her, verse 22? Her request is not, oh Lord, have mercy on my daughter, but rather, Lord, have mercy on me. The mother's pain is almost more than the daughter's pain. She has double pain. She feels everything the daughter's going through. And she feels the agony of helplessness. She has a double agony. And so the story ends, not, oh woman, your, your daughter is healed, but your request is granted. Mothers are only as happy as their saddest child. And this child was in unbearable pain, and in a strange way, the mother therefore has a double pain. As parents who love our children... Faith requires great persistence as we raise them. Paul says in Romans 5, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. That is what Jesus is doing with this woman. And in us, if we won't give up, when the exam of life gets tough, when a few storms come our way, when Jesus doesn't answer our request as we hope, are we just going to give up on him? Are we going to press in by faith? Are we going to allow him to reveal our cultural prejudices and our wrong expectations and our racial blind spots? For Jesus to form you into his likeness, which is what he wants to do, he'll have to surprise you, disturb you, and engage with you on his terms, not just your terms. He is Lord, not you. So come with the woman and kneel before the Lord. Keep crying out. Keep going after him. He'll make you someone great if you do. And on the final day when he returns or you go home before, you may hear those wonderful words. You had great faith. Come and enter my glory. Some of us need to learn the holy plod that is walking by faith in this life. Just keep going. Keep persisting. Don't give up on Jesus when things get tough. He's taking you deeper. Press into the exam. Keep going after Jesus in prayer to find crumbs from his table. If you find but one crumb, it'll fill you and satisfy you for this life and the next. One crumb from Jesus is worth 2,000 feasts in this world. What does genuine faith that saves you look like? It rests in truth. It comes by grace. It requires persistence. And it sends us out to welcome in the outsiders. A few moments before this story, Jesus feeds 5,000 in Galilee. And there's 12 basketfuls, crumbs, left over. After this story, he feeds 4,000 people. And there's seven basketfuls. Why two miracle stories about bread? Multiplying bread, too much bread, bread that overflows from the table. Can you see? 12 represents ah, the Jews. Seven represents the number of the whole perfection and the number of all the nations. 
there's plenty of bread for the Jew and for the Gentile. And there's more. When in the Old Testament do we read about the hardness of the heart of Israel and God sending one of his prophets like this one into a Gentile area called Sidon to discover marvelous faith in an outsider and healing of their daughter. 1 Kings 17, Elijah in the region of Sidon (laughs) raises a woman son back to life. And 2 Kings 4, Elisha raises the Shunammite's woman, another Canaanite son, back to life. In other words, this has always been the direction of God's heart to the Gentiles, to the racially excluded, to the vulnerable, to the needy, to the unclean, to the unlikely. God always goes to them. In Matthew 8, Jesus heals a centurion's servant with just a word and commends his faith. In Matthew 15, Jesus heals a Canaanite woman's daughter with just a word and commends her faith. These two stories foreshadow the time when the true Israel, the church, Israel that is constituted by faith, not by race, will transcend the boundaries of cultural, ethnic, race, gender, nationality, and geography. Following Jesus always leads you out of your comfort zone and into engaging with people that aren't quite like you from different backgrounds, ages, races, socioeconomic contexts and cultures. Faith in Jesus requires you to go out from yourself to the outsider, out of your comfort zone, to go to them, to learn from them because as you engage with someone that's not like you, you discover all your cultural and racial prejudices and Jesus says, I'm taking you deeper. Stick with the process. Go and be changed. Jesus' kingdom fits into no political system or geographic boundaries or cultural preferences because we're united, as Adam so wonderfully said, by faith. We're united by faith in Jesus. Faith sends us out to welcome in the outsider. And how could it not be? The one who'd been inside from all eternity was cast out. The one who was clean from a perfect life of obedience was defiled. On the cross, he who was clean was made unclean so that we who are unclean can be made clean by grace. The insider was made an outsider. You can come home. Or we could say, the son became a dog so we dogs could be brought sons and daughters to the table. Let us therefore give up our pride and our many reasons for entitlement and offence. Let us approach him like this woman in worship, adoration, in faith and persistence, knowing that if we could just get one crumb that fell from his table, that would be more than enough. We'd be full and overflowing. And let us continue to go out, out of our comfort zones, giving up our prejudices to welcome others to the table of Jesus that they might too discover the bread of life as Adam has discovered, and that we as a church, a family, might unite across every single barrier the world puts up because we're all united in Christ. Let me pray and we'll sing to finish. Let's take a moment just to pause and allow the Holy Spirit to push something on your heart that he wants to right now. Lord, we declare afresh today that you are the Lord, that you're the king, not just of Israel, but of this world, that you are the great healer, and that you're our saviour, and that if we could just have a crumb that falls from your table, we will be overflowing and full of 
more than we could ever get anything from this world. All the feasts of this world would not give us what your one crumb does. I pray that we'd learn from this woman deep lessons around faith. Thank you that it rests in truth. We're not just blind, but we know you and we know you walk this earth and we know you now by your, your spirit. Thank you that it comes by grace, not because we've cleaned our act up, but because you came to us when we were unclean and made us clean. We thank you, Lord, that when you ask us to persist, it's because you love us, not because you're being nasty. You want to draw us deeper. And I pray for my brothers and sisters who maybe have given up because of something that tough that happened in their life. As we reflect on Adam's story even, they would know, no, you want them to persist and find you, even through the trials. And Lord, as a church, may we have this heart of Jesus that just keeps going out, keeps going out of our comfort zones is willing to be changed as we encounter him afresh day by day. We pray that in his name. Amen.